Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 30. Um, this, is, this is kind of turned into a little bit of awkwardness for me because as you'll see, we're in this section of uh, adultery and lust. And this is the first week that my girls have sermon notebooks. And Layla's like, you got to tell me the points, Dad. I got to know all the points, Dad. <laughs> so we'll see how this goes. But Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. But the good news is, uh, the word of the Lord uh, is powerful. And I don't have to fear anything that comes from the word of the Lord uh, for anybody who is in its hearing. Uh, last week, as I said, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Last week, we, we began looking at this new section in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus uh, taking time um, of pointing out some misuse, some abuse of the current religious elite, teachers and rabbis. And as I've said uh, the last few weeks, as Jesus says, they have begun to relax God's commandments. Relax as in to make them, make them easier. To really break them away from their actual purpose. Uh, and when they do that, guess what? They look good. They look righteous. And this section that we've started in 21, that will finish all the way through this chapter... Jesus is setting the facts straight. Uh, he's letting his hearer know that the law isn't to make you look good outwardly. Because anybody could take something that they are not supposed to do outwardly and try real hard not to do it. But what Jesus is saying is, oh, no, no, no. You're missing the point. You're missing the point of what God the Father intends through the giving of the law. The kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom, is a matter of true righteousness. It's a righteousness that is not like that of the Pharisees, who Jesus describes as whitewashed tombs. Or cups that are pretty on the outside with filth on the inside. The kingdom of heaven is a matter of righteousness. And this righteousness is not surface deep. But it penetrates the heart. The righteousness of the kingdom of heaven is deep. It is transformational. Last week we looked at the first law that Jesus was setting straight and that was the outward action of murder. This was murder. But Jesus gave equal judgment to anger. He says you murder, you'll be liable to judgment. You're angry with your brother, you'll be liable to judgment. You insult your brother, you're liable to judgment. And what is the judgment? but hell of fire. Uh, 
the outward law, that which they thought they could just obey and get away with, was murder. But Jesus was letting them know that the internal origin of murder was anger and hate. This was, there's no way around it. In this week's pattern, we have a same, or this week's law, we have a similar pattern with adultery. And with the internal origin or the beginning place of adultery being lust. And where does Jesus say that this lust exists? But in the heart. But in the heart. So let me read the passage and then we'll define what we're discussing here as far as adultery and lust goes. Let's just read it from 27 through 30 and then a short prayer. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than the whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Let's pray. Lord God, help us in this time as we uh, look to search your scripture, seek to understand your will greater and to love you more and to live a life worthy and obedient to our calling that we have received in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So the first thing I want us to do this morning is get a biblical understanding of this sin. A biblical understanding of adultery. Uh, Adultery, just like murder, was in the Ten Commandments. Pretty straightforward. They're really short. Don't, Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. There's not a lot of explanation going on there. Uh, We see, we could take just based on that word, and it's really interesting, that is the first time in the Bible that word is used, is in the Ten Commandments. It's not spoken of in Genesis or their time in Egypt. As far as I could see, that word came first in Exodus uh, 20. So, how did they know what that was? If what, what, what was the basis of this sin? Do not commit adultery. Well, we can look at what God did in the beginning. We can look what God did in the garden. We can see what His intent was between Adam and Eve. And then we can also look at Jesus' words who quotes Genesis and shows us the intent of man and woman in marriage. So we can, we'll just lay this out. Adultery, as a simple definition, unfaithfulness in marriage. Now that's a very simple definition and it can go in a couple different ways, but we're going to start here. Simple definition of adultery is unfaithfulness in marriage. It implies The scriptures imply that the intimate or sexual relationships are reserved between one man 
and one woman as God defines it. As God defines marriage. Right? So how does God define it? Now, instead of taking you to Genesis, flip over to Matthew 19 and let's see Jesus define it as he looks back to creation. Matthew 19. Then we'll also see it kind of similarly similarly defined in a negative way with the same sort of verbiage, okay? Matthew 19, beginning in verse 4 through 6. Now, Jesus, and we're going to actually get into this topic next week, Lord willing, about divorce, which overlaps with adultery. Uh, the Pharisees come up to try to test Jesus about divorce, but we want to jump to Jesus' answer in verse 4 to see what his idea of marriage is. Which would then, okay, let me make sure we understand this. We can't really have an understanding of adultery if we don't have the true understanding of God ordained marriage, right? Of the relationship between a man and a woman. So let's see what Jesus says. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now hold on to that phrase. The two shall become one flesh. Verse 6, So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. What God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus takes the creation account, God creating man and woman, male and female. The man leaves his household, his father and his mother. He holds fast to a woman. One woman. A wife. Not multiple one woman to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. God has joined them together in this. So we can look back through biblical times, and we can understand as we, and, and not just in Scripture, but in the past, how we can understand that marriage was held. But there was this idea that marriage was consummated between the man and the woman. That there was this coming together of them becoming one flesh. This intimate relationship that takes place between a man and a woman, God sees this as two becoming one. This is only for these two that have been joined together. Now let's look at it from a negative aspect in 1 Corinthians 6. And as you turn there, and I, I, I wrote it down this way and I didn't say it the way I wanted to, we know that the intimate sexual relationship is reserved for the marriage bed. That's basically what Jesus said. The two shall become one. Now let's, let's look at it in the context of a negative coming together. 
This again helps us to understand God's design for intimacy between one man and one woman. First uh, Corinthians chapter six. Uh, let's start in verse thirteen. First Corinthians six thirteen. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and another. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, for sexual sin, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now hear that. Your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? So we have a, sec- we have a situation now outside of marriage, right? That's, that's the situation we're now in. We have intimacy outside of marriage. Or do you not know in verse 16 that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. Sounds a lot familiar to what Jesus was saying. Becomes one body with her. For as it was written, the two will become one flesh. The intimate relationship between a man and a woman is reserved for the marriage bed. And it is, they are joined together in the sight of the Lord. And this is crucial for our understanding and to know what is, what is commanded of us, not just as people, but as members of the body of Christ. You've got you to hear that. As a Christian... You are a member of the body. I, and I don't just mean a group of people. I'm actually talking about you are joined with Christ. And, that, and, and look down at verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the setting for do not commit adultery. Now, we could spend more and more time on this. But what we can see in 1 Corinthians 6 is what God has set apart for marriage and marriage only. Our fallenness, our sinfulness, leads us to fulfill our own desires and bring this beautiful thing into wickedness. 
all the Lord has made in our sinfulness, we can find a way to ruin it. And this is one thing that we have done in our fallenness. A pursuit of temporary pleasure and fulfillment. By turning something that was good into something that is bad. And like murder, there is an origin of this. Like murder, there is an origin. And that origin is in our heart. And that origin is lust. Now you think back to David. What's David doing? He's supposed to be at war. Right? It says it's in the time of the year when all the kings go out to battle. What's he doing? He's lounging on his rooftop. And he's looking. And he sees a woman. And he lusts after her. That word is tricky in the Greek. It's a compound word. There's like a preposition in front of it, like upon kind of thing. And then the other word is like wrath, um, fury. It's not a pretty word. It is heinous, actually. When you look at that Greek buildup of the word lust, it really surprised me. I don't probably am not doing it justice, but any other time that that second, uh, that, com- that second part of that compound word is used in Scripture, it's usually used as the word wrath. And so to lust upon something is to not do any good or to bring about any actual pleasure. It seems to be doing the opposite. And we can step back from our lives. We can step back from the world. Hindsight 2020, lust does bring upon negative wrath, these types of ideas. Nothing good comes from lust. David sees Bathsheba with his eyes and he lusts after her. And his lust leads to adultery. His adultery leads to deception. His deception leads to murder. Now, All of that leads to consequences. And we did not get far enough in the next chapter. Not only is the consequence of Uriah's life, but beginning with lust, the son that is born dies as a consequence of David's sin. As a consequence of David's sin. Here's the irony behind that anyway. You get to that chapter, David's already been married to someone else. I think multiple times. So we can see in Scripture that God has commands and rules in place. One man, one woman, the two two join and become one flesh. And then we see all throughout Scripture, all throughout the Old Testament, the fallenness of even God's people in polygamy, multiple spouses, concubines, uh, just going after their 
flesh, fleshly desires and pleasures. So you might get people, to, this is kind of an off-topic note, you might get people to condemn God or the Bible because especially in the conversation we have a lot these days of um, marriage, uh, homosexuality and uh, marriage between man and woman. Well, if God so felt so proud for one man and one woman, why didn't he set David straight? Why didn't he set um, Abraham straight? Why didn't he take care of all of this in the Old Testament? It's because the Bible's real. The Bible doesn't wash over man's sin. Just because God said it doesn't mean the people that are in the Bible are going to do it. That's why we need the gospel. That's why we need forgiveness. The Bible seems more real because we don't wash over the sins of the ones whom we hold high, like David. He was a sinner, very much so. And his life was a wreck probably because of his marriage bed. Did you know that David had a son who raped his daughter? And then one of his sons killed that son. And then that same son turned on David. So there are consequences to our sin. There are consequences to how we view marriage and the marriage bed. And we see that in David's life. And we can see it probably in our past and the people in the world around us. So that really sets that stage of adultery and lust. Jesus says, do not... You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to, to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So, point two. We are right back where we were last week. The sinful nature of our heart. And you might think, wow, you're going to talk about that again? Well, that's the point. That's the point with each of these is to press upon you the disease, the disease within our hearts, the disease of sin. You know, the secular and the mis the secular well-to-do and even the misguided churches and Christians say everyone has good in them. Everyone is capable of good. We just need to get it out. We just need to maneuver it or focus on it or massage it, whatever. What, if you need to get right, it's in you. You just got to get it out. And that's what they believe salvation is, whether they're Christian, Buddhist, this or that, uh, atheist, not true Christians, mind you. They believe salvation is within. But the Bible says if you look inward... You are damned. If you look inward, you are damned. 
The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The natural condition of us is that we would be controlled by the things that would lead us to lust. Outside of the Spirit of God, when you walk out the door, your body will lead you to this sin. Without the supernatural help of the Lord. If you go and read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25 today, you will see that the consequence of idolatry, of suppressing the truth about God, turns into lustful people who are, des- who are after only their desires of the flesh. All flesh is driven by sexual immorality outside of the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is a huge theme in epistle in the epistles. This is a huge theme in the epistles. Galatians 5:19 says the work of the flesh let me just read it. I, you don't have to turn there. Paul says to the Galatians, the work of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. This leads us to this, what Jesus is calling us not to do. To lust in our hearts. Once again, the law is pointing towards God's will of inward righteousness. Inward purification. Dirty water, clean water. That's purification. Sick heart, pure heart. That's purification. How did Jesus say it in verse 8? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The gospel is our answer. The gospel is the answer to inward purification, to true righteousness that Jesus is leaning towards that Jesus is pointing us to. Here's what I want you to understand. This is what grace is. This is grace. That we are born and grow up with this heart that wants to lust. Or as we said last week, that wants to hate and be angry. That's how we grow up. That's how we are born. But grace is, Christ comes when we are deep in it. Of course, this goes for every sin. Any unrepentant sin. Christ comes when we are stuck in the miry bog of lust, of anger, this is, I, I might not be saying it with joy, but this is good news, people. This is good news. That even you, in your sin of desiring things that are not good within your heart, Christ comes for you. 
Christ wants to cleanse you. The gospel doesn't say, get up out of your sin, clean yourself off, and then God's going to come grab you. If that was the case, there would be no point of a Messiah. There would be no point for a cross. There would be no point for a resurrected Savior. God's grace goes after the sinner, the unrighteous, the sick. You don't go to a doctor if you're not sick. Jesus comes to those who need forgiveness. This is the grace of God. Not that you, I'm going to stop doing that today. Now God can come to me. No, no. The grace of God is that He comes to you, cleanses you, transforms you by the blood of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And then guess what? Then you can take that step. Then you can put on the armor of God. Then you can put off that old self and get away with all of those, uh, the sensualities and the impurities. And you can put on the new self day by day. Because this is what we're called to. The gospel is God coming to us as sinners. They are changed in and by His grace. As Ezekiel 36 says, I know I say it like every Sunday, I will put my spirit in them, I will remove their heart of flesh, or heart of stone, and I will give them a heart of flesh. Now, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 6, because there's something that's really cool on this passage. It's actually before what we've already read. Something that is beautiful in its grace. That's what it is. We're going to start in verse 9. Now hear the bad news and then the grace. Verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's what we've been talking about a lot lately, the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, nor the idolaters, the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindles will inherit the kingdom of God. Grace in verse 11, and such were some of you. Because you quit doing that. Nope, that's not what he says. You were washed, cleansed, purified. You were sanctified, meaning you were set apart from that. You were made holy, consecrated to God. You were justified. Whoa. You mean to tell me the sexual immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, the men who practice homosexualities, the thieves, the greedy, the drunkards, the reviles, the swindlers were counted innocent? Yes. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Praise be to God. This is the gospel that comes to us in our anger, in our hatred, in our lust, in all of our sin. And it changes us. And I hope that we have testimony that says, and I once was, but now I'm not. I once lived this way and God has transformed me, justified me, washed me, sanctified me in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, point three and... We'll go through this somewhat quickly. Jesus gives instructions in this passage in Matthew. He gives instructions. There's a lot that is actually... It's, it's what, two or three verses? But there is so much that could be said of these... It's two verses. Maybe four or five sentences. Here are four things that, that shed light are four things that these two verses shed light on. We're going to talk about the first few tonight. God's serious, God's seriousness towards our sin. Let me read it first. I'm, I apologize. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, Cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. So what does this shed light on? God's seriousness towards our sin. Number two, the consequences of a life of sin. Like I said, we'll go over these tonight. Number three, a call to arms against sin. And then number four, how we can fight the battle against lust. Now, I kind of have two things as far as our battle against lust and how this passage can help us. Number one, the most well-known understanding or most well-known of interpretation is discipline. Discipline. Now, if you don't have the Spirit of God, discipline will get you nowhere. Because you can cut off your hand Guess what? You got another hand. You can cut off that hand. Guess what? You got a perverted mind. You can do whatever you want outside of the power of God and you will not keep your whole body from being thrown into hell. So you must understand discipline for righteousness sake only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Only through faith in Jesus Christ. So, but the discipline of a believer. So what's the discipline? To keep from temptation. To keep from temptation. Basically, don't look at it if it's going to put you in a position to sin. Don't handle it if it controls you. 
Don't look at it if you cannot walk away without sin. Or don't hold it if you cannot keep it under control. So that's the eye and the hands. We are not made perfect at conversion. Okay? We have to understand this. You say you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today, tomorrow you will sin. going to happen. You're not made perfect at conversion. This is the process of progressive sanctification. Being made like Christ over a lifetime. So you must live your life attempting to discipline yourself. Paul says, bodily training is good, but spiritual training is better. You want to work out and be fit? That's a good thing. But you need to work out and grow in the Lord. And that is how you become spiritually disciplined. That's how when you see something out the corner of your eye, you stop and say, "Mm, don't need to look at that. Because what that's going to do, I'm going to wind up in a path like David. Or, and Jesus uses this example again, and he says, cut your feet off. If your feet are going to lead you to a place where you're going to wind up in sin like David, don't go there. But that takes maturity. That takes dependency. And that begins with faith. That begins with... When I say faith, when you hear me say it begins with faith, it means you're trusting in God. You're trusting that He knows what's best for you. Now... You can, well, I've got, if you go and look through Ephesians 4 and 5, you can see the call to put off the old self, put on the new, to set aside, to not even talk about sexual immorality, impurities, and sensualities. This is what we have to do. We have to force it out, trusting that God knows and God will deliver. All of this is grounded in faith. But I, I want to quickly say something that I've struggled with all week in trying to understand. And I think there and I don't think I'm overstepping in this text. But when you look at Jesus' instructions to cut off your eye or to tear out your eye or cut off your hand, if I told one of you boys to take your eye out, you'd go, I kind of need it. It's kind of important, right? It has value. Your eyeball has value to you. Now, what if I told you you need to cut out your eye because it has cancer, and if you don't, you'll die? What if you told me my eye's too valuable? What have you just done? You have put a higher value on your eye than on your whole body. Meaning... You now worship your eye more than your whole body. You have placed a higher value on something that is not as valuable. This is called idolatry. This is called worshiping something of lesser value than God. So, 
What does that look like in this context of lust? What do we idolize? What do we worship? What can we say, I can't get rid of that? Pleasure. Control. Neediness. Relationships. I cannot get rid of this relationship that is leading me into this sexual sin, into this immorality. I need it. But if you don't get rid of that, you might get rid of your whole body. I have to have control over this. I have to, I have to feel needed. I need this pleasure it is very important and valuable to me. Is it more valuable than your soul? You see, Jesus wants you to understand to fight this sin and really every sin, you have to have prioritized and valued things correctly. And when you don't, when you value these things that lead you into sin more than you value your soul and eternity, you fall into idolatry. You fall into worshiping something that does not deserve worship. Which brings us back around to Romans chapter 1, 18 through 20, whatever. For they suppressed the truth, they worshiped the creature rather than the creator. And what happened to them? Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. We must understand the value of Jesus Christ. We must understand the value of the kingdom of heaven. And when we have those, when we, when we see the, the immeasurable riches of the saints in Christ Jesus, then all of those things that we feel like we need or that is drawing us to sin is just whew, gone. No more temptation. Well, no more succumbing to temptation. We must value Christ above all things. And when we do, we can fight this battle of sin in our hearts. Lust, anger, hatred, whatever it may be. Whatever it may be. Um... I'll just say it instead of looking at the passages. Uh, as we talk about adultery and lust and unfaithfulness in marriage, one thing we can be sure of, and Paul writes it to Timothy, when you are faithless, God remains faithful. 
He remains faithful to the bride of Christ. There is no adultery between our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and us, his bride. He loves us and he will love us to the end. And when we come to him in confession and repentance, he forgives us of all our sin. He cleanses us of all our unrighteousness. This is true love of a husband to a wife. And this is the perfect love that we receive in Jesus Christ. So I pray and I ask, if you know that love, have you trusted in Christ? Is he the most valuable thing, the greatest treasure that you have? And I pray that he is, and I pray that you will repent and believe and be filled with the love of Christ that will never be taken. Let's pray.